1: Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah. Ray. Well, with now 75% of women aged 25 to 54 in the labor force, there's a lot more businesses out there, including one called The Perfect Wife, a guy who runs a business doing the random miscellaneous things that women no longer have time to do. Well, it was an intriguing editorial written by a former Treasury Secretary in the New York Times that caught my attention, A Healthcare Bargain. Paul O'Neill taking on um, uh, the question, Should American citizenship bring with it the right to have financial access to medical care? We'll take it up. I want to hear from you. We'll also talk about chronic GI troubles keeping all too many off the job. All that and more inviting you to join us at 800-307-3002 right here on Healthy Talk Radio.
0: Now the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest.
1: This is intriguing. The food science program, the College of Agriculture, uh, Food, and Natural Resources at the University of Missouri, has been doing some interesting research on grapes and red wines. They concluded that the red wines, the Merlots, the Cabernets, the Zinfandels, have antimicrobial properties that defect uh, that actually defend against food-borne illness and don't harm naturally useful bacteria, the probiotics. They took a look at E. coli, salmonella, listeria, H. pylori. And, of course, some of them can even be deadly, particularly the E. coli and the uh, listeria. They found um, it's something about the the alcohol content itself, the ethanol. The, The pH, though, red wine, unlike white wine, is a little more acidic, and the resveratrol. That naturally occurring uh, compound that can be uh, concentrated in certain red wines, and uh, there's some some supplements out there these days that researchers are actually taking a look at making a drug um, against diabetes and aging and Alzheimer's and more. But isn't it interesting? They found uh, that naturally occurring, these red wines, because of the resveratrol, as well as the pH and the alcohol, have antimicrobial properties, killing the bad foodborne bacteria, but uh, not harming the naturally useful probiotic uh, bacteria. Isn't it interesting <laughs> what nature has to offer? Speaking of nature, we know these days uh, there's a lot more detrimental toxins out there in nature. In fact, in a recent issue of the British uh, New Scientist was the revelation that 75,000 chemicals is the number to which we're exposed each and every day. University of Nevada, uh, University of Arizona, and University of California have now taken a look at why did uh, these clusters of children, in particular areas of the country, develop uh, cancer? They took a look at the Fallon, Nevada area, in which a large number of uh, children developed um, leukemia, and in certain areas of Arizona as well, asking the question, uh, you know, what primed the pump? You know, what happened with these children, either genetically before they were born, or during their infancy in other words to what environmental factors were they exposed that actually affected genetic expression they're also taking a look at the the fact that there was an outbreak of childhood shingles that exposed them to certain viruses as well and other studies have shown that there's um, high amounts of, of metals like tungsten in this environment as well and of course it's eye-opening because it's part of the microcosm that we may have a genetic predisposition to cancer, but never develop cancer if we are savvy to take care of our genes in an optimal fashion. On the other hand, it uh, helps us to explain why certain environmental factors of which we're just now becoming aware, for example, um, showering in chlorinated water, uh, can actually set the stage for serious cases of breast and and, uh, uh, bladder cancer because of how those genes are being affected. Activating genes, inactivating genes, our environment has a role to play as well as our individual lifestyle habits with an environmental link now being probed in these cancer cluster cases. Well, I suspect it's a good thing, certainly for the economy, with double-digit growth every year for the past 10 years. The Organic Trade Association, the Organic Farming Research Foundation, now uh, indicating that the demand for organic food is outstripping the supply. That many farmers say to go, you know, three years without applying pesticides to the soil is um, uh, certainly a hurdle. But uh, now, just last year, the sales of organic foods up to $16 billion, with sales growing at a rate of 20% a year. U.S. farmers can barely keep up with the demand for organic produce. And we hope a lot more of them take notice of this and try to go organic as well. With the revelation that this week that Medtronic, a very large maker of medical devices, has pulled uh, certain defibrillation wires um, indicating that they have a high rate of fracture that might be even related to patient deaths. What's as disturbing now is the revelation that the Food and Drug Administration had received notices of these failure reports over a year and a half ago. So Public Citizen, Ralph Nader's uh, organization, Dr. Sidney Wolf sitting down and penning a letter yesterday to the Food and Drug Administration asking the question, why did the FDA, aware of a rapidly mounting number of injury reports related to these implantable defibrillators, not force Medtronic, to recall these defibrillators implanted in the early part of this year, 2007, So since January, remember the FDA already knew, the FDA has received another 1,000 plus reports of malfunction. And I think that should be eye-opening to all of us, whether or not the Food and Drug Administration is really serving um, the consumer's needs with the revelation why the wires weren't recalled until this week with the Food and Drug Administration knowing that they were defective far before that well we've recently read um, uh, about Amgen that drug that is often given to uh, dialysis patients to stimulate their body to uh, to actually activate the bone marrow to, to make more blood cells particularly red blood cells and there's been a big competitive war going on between a drug from Amgen versus a drug from Roche and now there is a looming clash with uh, some charges being made it's against some of the uh, the drug companies involved that they are doing some strong-arm tactics with our nation's dialysis clinics saying if they switch to the competitor's drug and it's pulled from the market, they will actually have to pay more to use the competitor's drugs. It's big money. Amgen has uh, sold... billion worth of this medication since 1989. And, of course, with uh, dialysis, it's one of the few medical procedures that's completely paid for by government funds. We're talking about big dollars at stake. Well, it's the number one killer of both men and women. In fact, it kills more women than men, heart disease. So when you are uh, uh, diagnosed with a blockage, what are your treatment options and what are the um, options in terms of analyzing your treatment choices. Stanford University now weighing in, taking a look at 23 clinical trials of patients who opted for angioplasty to open blocked arteries versus patients who, op- who opted for bypass surgery to open a blocked arteries. What they found is that the uh, success rate for angioplasty equaled that of bypass surgery. And for those who know the history, angioplasty was supposed to replace bypass surgery. <laughs> it didn't. It caused uh, us to continue to do as many uh, bypass surgeries plus just skyrocketing rates for up to 2 million angioplasties each and every year in this country. And the benefits are equal angioplasty equals bypass surgery for heart patients. We're going to return to talk about the chronic GI troubles keeping you off the job, all that and more right here on Healthy Talk Radio inviting you to join us at 800-307-3002 right here on Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray.
0: Check out Deborah Ray online, now with live audio streaming and audio archives of past shows, plus news stories, guest information, and the fast way to find books you've heard mentioned on the show, only at HealthyTalkRadio.com.
1: I'm Deborah. A. You're listening to Healthy Talk Radio. And before we take up um, Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill's um, question, should American citizenship bring with it the right to have financial access to medical care? And some of the uh, recent revelation that um, people who have chronic functional GI disorders, people with diverticulitis, colitis, uh, IBS, lose on average at least one full day of work. Every 40-hour work week. I'd still be remiss not to mention, um, I only found it in today's uh, Wall Street Journal, hospitals combat an insidious complication. What they're talking about is just literally eye-opening. Did you have any idea that studies have shown that up to 80% of patients who are in intensive care units, ICU patients, We know so many people that at some point have been an ICU patient suffer delirium. And there's actually a a growing body of evidence to suggest uh, even younger patients, patients in their 50s, um, they give the case of of a a young woman, a professional woman in her 50s who was struck with um, pneumonia and sepsis, which is a generalized bacterial infection. Um, She was hospitalized. Her, um, her illness was so severe, she was put in ICU, heavily sedated, and put on a ventilator for 10 years. She ended up, and she here she was, a manager at Bell South. When she went into the hospital, her IQ was 145. After 10 days in ICU, her IQ was 110. And even though she's done everything that she knows her IQ has only risen to 118. She said she had to take early retirement because literally when she went back to work, she had to ask her co-workers, what, what am I supposed to do? Preliminary evidence showed that each day spent in delirium, which is all too common for heavily sedated patients on respirators, can increase the risk of long-term cognitive impairment. What do I mean by that? Long-term cognitive impairment is just like this patient. She was back on the job saying, I don't remember what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't remember my life. I I don't remember simple things of everyday existence by 35%. That's sobering. Each day spent in delirium increases the risk of long-term cognitive impairment by 35%. 80% of ICU patients experience delirium. That is just sobering. You know what the bill is to be in ICU and the the common medical wisdom that you know nobody nobody has any, any appreciation, any thought whatsoever that if a patient needs to be in ICU, that it is good medicine to give them that level of care. Now, Vanderbilt University is, is actually putting together a website, icudelirium.org, because they say we've got to do something about it. You know, I'll, I'll never forget, in fact, it was a Wall Street Journal article many years ago, about five years ago talking about post-pump syndrome that patients who undergone coronary artery bypass grafting procedure in other words a heart bypass that's a very common procedure in this country we do 400,000 of them each and every year heart bypass he was an attorney suffered post-pump syndrome in other words as part of the heart surgery he was put on a heart lung pump a perfusion technique to bypass the circulation through the heart so that the surgeons could operate. I never forget the story of this this patient who said, you know, I, I knew the statistics, I knew the mortality, the, uh, the the morbidity. I thought that the risk of the surgery was just piece of cake only to find out because of post-pump syndrome that he had no idea that his brain was forever changed, forever unable to return to his chosen profession. We see the same in chemo brain. People who choose chemotherapy only to discover, and we're finding this in children who have forms of brain cancer, that the drugs affect the brain to the extent that they never think the same way again. That is just eye-opening. And, of course, the amazing thing is, you know, people in ICU are the experiment here. There is little appreciation for this. There are a, a small but growing number of hospitals, thanks to uh, innovative researchers at Vanderbilt University, uh, their medical center there, and others, that they have to get patients off the respirators as soon as possible. They have to give the patients mental stimulation while they're in in, in the hospital to keep those brains strong. And, of course, you and I know there is a whole list of important um, nutritional lifestyle factors that would make a huge difference. Making sure that patients in those situations get optimal nutrition, get supplementation with critical nutrients for brain function, like acetylcarnitine and fish oil and the phosphatidylcholines and serines and vinpocetine that you know physical exercise is very important for mental exercise as well so i mean even activity in the bed can make a difference they're saying just simple wake up and breathe protocols turning off the sedation temporarily allowing patients to wake up so their state of mind and comfort can be determined, makes a world of difference. you imagine 50 years of age, a manager at Bell South, comes down with pneumonia, treated in ICU, is on a respirator for 10 days, and her IQ when she leaves is 110, never has yet to return to the 145 when she went in surgery? Just eye-opening information that... You and me as healthcare consumers. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a lot that tells us, even with all the technology, all the advances in medicine, that we have a medical system unlike any other in the world. Look, look at the amount of money, the number of people whose lives and livelihood is made on the sick care system in this country and the amount of technology that we have to offer. And we're, we're glad for it, particularly in situations of emergency and trauma. But, but we're, we're so short-sighted in so many arenas. So when I picked up yesterday's uh, New York Times, I don't normally meet and read their, their op-ed page. And I know you say, keep your politics to yourself. And, and that's just, just my own personal prejudice. I'm telling you up front, But I was intrigued by a title, A Healthcare Bargain. And it was penned by a former Treasury Secretary. In fact, he's been in the news recently because of his book, Sort of a Little Tell-All on the Bush Administration. Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill. And what he's talking about is the fact that we all thought the Medicare Part D, the Medicare Prescription Drug Plan, would be a boon for our citizenry but when we talk about a bipartisan agreement where do we draw the line when it comes to entitlement and how do we answer the thorny question because as he indicates every single political candidate is ignoring the question should American citizenship bring with it the right to have financial access to medical care there's a lot more thorny issues, and I want to hear from you about this. We're talking about uh, should a uh, being an American bring with it the right is is healthcare a birthright in this country? One eight hundred three zero seven three zero zero two, right here on Healthy Talk Radio.
0: The information presented on Healthy Talk Radio is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but hey, how much do they know about medicine anyway?
1: It's an intriguing question asked in an op-ed piece uh, by former tre- Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill in yesterday's uh, New York Times. Uh, the op-ed piece entitled A Health Care Bar- uh, Bargain, in case you'd like to look it up, with the central question, and, and Paul O'Neill's right, no political candidate has addressed the question, do we have a birthright to medical care in this country? And given the fact that we have now, six decades of cultural conditioning, we think, thanks to the wage controls back in the Second World War, that one, with our employment, our employer will pay for our health care. Two, we have no idea what health care costs. Three in addition to not knowing what it costs the present system has no incentive for us caring what it costs caring about quality caring about um, you know getting our money's worth none whatsoever for because we're now in the situation where better than 50% of the dollars that change hands in this country regarding health care come from government sources. It's, I'm sorry. I don't think it's going to change. I don't think it's going to change. I mean, I appreciate former Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill's statement that we are sufficiently wealthy, blessed as a nation, and advanced as a society he makes a statement that we should consider financial access to medical care as a birthright. Right up front, right out there, he believes that if you're an American citizen, that needed medical care is a birthright. And that's an, another one of the issues here. In terms of charity, in terms of general culture and community, we are indeed a caring country and whether it's a you know a child without needed care a cancer patient a terminal patient without needed care there are very few among us who would not say hey i'll, I'll try and help that other person we'll try and make sure that they get the needed medical care that uh, that, that that's you know necessary for, for literally their lives couple dilemmas here one of the big dilemmas is the medical profession I've never met a medical doctor nor read any writing from a medical doctor nor heard or listened to or or viewed any member of the medical profession in this country whose total mindset is not I have to do everything that's medically necessary for that patient and if we rely upon that medical profession to be able to delineate cost effective care, that's not the way we've educated in huh? and that's not certainly the the cultural conditioning we're we're the the nation of bill my insurance company. We're the nation of thinking, "Oh you know I've got coverage by my employer or I've got Medicare. I've heard a number of people saying. Medicare is great covers everything Medicaid you know the, the disabled the uh, the infirm and, and those you know financially challenged have some level of care in this country you know the failure to address a system that would set the criteria start that long cultural conditioning. that cost-effective care in the end matters. And we are the best example of really getting this message in the world. We spend two and a half times. It's now up to over $7,000 per person per year on medical care. It's staggering. 16% of the gross national product expected that within this decade by the year 2010 to go to 20%. No other country comes close. And even though you'll hear many, many people, many of them on the radio, say, oh my goodness, we've got the best healthcare system on the planet. We're the best. We're the top. No, that's not right. We are enviable when it comes to trauma and emergency We are pitiful when it comes to chronic care. We are laughable when it comes to cost-effective care. I don't say that from a detrimental standing. I say that from the realization that every single measure of quality of care, for example, infant mortality, maternal deaths, longevity, the healthfulness of a patient at age sixty, we're not near the we're not the top. We're not, we're not even near the top. So what Paul O'Neill's thought is, is that most Americans would have to have significant personal cost until a universal catastrophic coverage—in other words, what we used to call major medical—took over. It's all about, you know, the, the question that's now this huge political football, thanks to the, the, the S chip, you know, at what income level should people be required to shoulder some and then all of their own health insurance needs? Because socialized medicine, a code word for rationed care, Is certainly not going to be embraced by many in the medical profession, much less you and me as healthcare consumers. And there's the, the thorny issue. Secretary, uh, uh, former Treasury Secretary O'Neill brings it up in this op-ed piece. No other sector of our society, quote, does such a, a bad job of learning from things gone wrong, unquote. We look at uh, hospitals now saying to its, its staff, to its physicians, we're going to learn from the aviation industry. We've done such a poor job of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. P.S. Rudyard Kipling's definition of insanity. And now we have, of course, the land of litigation the field of malpractice that leads doctors and hospitals to withhold information on bad incidents. So former uh, Treasury Secretary O'Neill's suggestion is that the government should require every provider to report every error within 24 hours. That we should abolish malpractice in civil courts. That we should establish an independent body to determine the economic damage to the injury partered and pay it from government funds, from general treasury revenues. And that this collection of data on medical errors could be part of a broader-based national standard that every patient records should be computerized, that there should be a common national standard for, for this you know, collaboration and integration of this healthcare data. But but given that cultural conditioning, just think about it. It's one of those issues that evokes strong emotions. Because how many individuals in this country were told that your healthcare is paid for, for the rest of your life. And how many of those individuals are, are highly insulted and, and, I mean, you, you have to empathize with that. But that's just not a financial reality. So, you know, was the company wrong for promising that or was the individual wrong for believing that? No matter what the answer is to either of those questions, We now find an auto industry completely uncompetitive in the world market. We now find a total American economy increasingly crippled by the fact that we have no incentive, little tools to know how to stay well. If 78% of our nation's health care dollars go to chronic conditions... What am I talking about? We're talking about 78% of that total health care. It's now, uh, what is it, $2.3 billion going to the treatment of heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, um, cancer, all of these chronic conditions. There's There are little to convince us of the fact that that is going to make us live longer or live healthier. Because after all, the current medical system has little to offer those chronic conditions. We treat the symptoms of heart disease. We have medications for high blood pressure. We have balloons and stents and bypass uh, procedures to open blocked arteries we have uh, anti-clotting medications uh, you know tissue plasminogen activators if you suffer a clot and then a heart attack or a stroke untold dollars spent on cardiac rehab none of which ever address why you got the heart disease to begin with you know, we can poke fun about the, the waiting times, the, you know, the Brits now pulling their own teeth. But the necessity of socialized medicine drove the, the, the need. We used to have a lot of it in this country. Ingenuity, through sort of that Yankee know-how. And what we see amazingly in, is in countries with socialized medicine like Great Britain... There's a much more open, objective attitude. What is cost-effective care? And if more antibiotics is not yielding the expected result in terms of less hospital-acquired infections, what do we need to know about? For example, they give patients probiotics. Washing hands is 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 not a uh, uh, no, not optional. It, it's required identifying and, and destroying people who harbor methicillin-resistant Staph aureus of bacteria, something that's done routinely. Looking at other options, because uh, these bugs are no longer responding to the strongest drugs. Eleven of their hospitals use uh, things like stabilized allicin, a form of garlic. Alimax for methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. Prince Charles, uh, uh, dubbed by the National Health Service, to overhaul hospitals from the standpoint of healing environments. Hospitals these days, because of any number of factors, promote hospital-acquired infections, promote poor outcomes and complications because of the lack of access to to good high quality nutritious foods the lack of a connection with with nature the lack of a physical activity which is essential to a healing outcome and and if you know one of the politicians and in fact if one of them who ends up winning the next presidential election believes that We have a birthright to medical care in this country. Will that break the bank? It's a very real economic question. And of course, the flip side, the economic reality, that given the present system of Social Security and Medicare, we will totally eclipse, bankrupt the federal budget, makes the question just not a a novel argument But a very real and very necessary dilemma for each and every one of us to consider. Are we willing to bear a certain personal burden of health care, of what it costs when we have to pay to be sick, before insurance kicks in? Should government pay for it for everybody? Then are we are we willing to you know to have large percentages of our income go to taxes? I want to hear from you. one 307 3002 Is health care a birthright on Healthy Talk Radio?
0: Twice the fiber and half the fat of regular talk shows. Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray.
1: Talking about, uh, is health care, financial access to medical care, a birthright in this country? A question not broached by any presidential candidate to date, but a, a very necessary question for all the reasons we have discussed, that financial dilemma in which we find ourselves from a business, from a government, indeed from, from a public health scenario. Because why, quite frankly... Um, you know the, the current system is sooner rather than later just going to serve less and less people for, for more and more money. You know a universal system where we all must have major medical care is essential, I believe. you know there there will be those of certain income strata that have to have some sort of subsidy. But the overall realization that yes, there will be out of pocket expenditures, but look what it did for LASIK eye surgery. It improved quality and it improved cost because of market forces. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of political footballing about it and, and maybe our current political leaders do not have the, you know, the wherewithal, the, the, the courage to make these choices. But you and I know we make those wise lifestyle choices on a regular basis or suffer the consequences that it's not only possible, we can do it. And the number of people in this country who take supplements, exercise on a regular basis, avail themselves of really educating themselves and looking at all possible alternatives, have that moral courage and exercise it on a regular basis. The flip side, you know, <laughs> I don't think we want to go the way of socialized health care. I don't think the medical profession and the vested interests will ever set that scenario in this country. But a very important question that each and every one of us should consider, taking a look at political candidates, taking a look at our own Healthcare scenario, because after all, it is much more cost effective, not only financially, but from a well being standpoint, to stay healthy. And the power of lifestyle, the power of orthomolecular supplementation, brings with it a promise. I heard it from a physician, and when you stop and think about it, wow, we have the opportunity. Thanks to what we know about lifestyle and nutritional supplementation, to be more healthy today than at any other time. If you missed anything, please join us online, healthytalkradio.com, the show archived there for two weeks. We post today's healthcare news. Thank you for joining us. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you live long, stay healthy.